This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. Today I'm talking to Stefan Brun, who joined the GHIL as a research fellow in early medieval history in May 2019. Before coming to London, he held positions at the universities of Freiburg and Breisgau and Kiel. His current research project focuses on the relationship between ecclesiastical and social hierarchies in the Frankish and early Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Today, however, we will be speaking about his dissertation on reformers, values and social groups in late Anglo-Saxon England that has just been published in German under the title Reformer als Wertegemeinschaften zur diskursiven Formierung einer sozialen Gruppe im spätangelsächsischen England circa 850 bis 1050 bei Jan Thorbecke Verlag. Thank you for joining me today, Stefan. Thanks for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about my research. To get us started, could you maybe briefly outline what the book is all about? Yeah, of course. My book explores the formation and self-perception of social groups in the early and high Middle Ages, and it is based on the example of reform communities in uh, late Anglo-Saxon or England or early English history that is roughly 850 to 1050. Um, the book focuses on two case studies. The first addresses the reforms initiated by King Alfred the Great at the end of the 9th century, and whom some of you may know from the um, famous BBC series, The Last Kingdom. The second case study is about the so-called Benedictine reform movement, which took place roughly in the second half of the 10th and the first half of the 11th century and is generally associated with some form of monastic renewal. The book not so much looks at the measures these reform movements took to change things according to their agenda, but uh, specifically at the visions of community. At the heart of the book, so to speak, lies a close study of the social dimensions and implications of moral discourses. What inspired the topic of your book? The Middle Ages have been the focus of my research ever since I wrote my BA thesis back in 2010, so quite a long time ago now. I've always been interested in social history and wanted to know more about people's living conditions in the past, how they shaped social life and which groups they formed. And um, during my master's degree in Freiburg, I further developed an interest in methodological questions. I started experimenting with approaches from the field of um, cultural studies, asking how people perceived the world they lived in, how values and concepts shaped this perception and served as guidelines for action. And the paradigms of social constructivism and historical discourse analysis appealed a lot to me. And so I ended up bringing my two research interests, that is medieval social history and cultural studies together. Um, for a long time, social history 
especially in Germany, the so-called Bielefeld Schule or School of Bielefeld has focused on quantitative approaches such as demographics or the development of wages to explain people's living conditions. Important as that may be, um, qualitative aspects such as lifestyle or self-fashioning also play an important role. Social groups in the Middle Ages are not exclusively formed by formal criteria. It is not only your trade or your parents' social background which determine your social standing. Social groups are also based on a common set of values that create a sense of belonging, a shared identity. And this holds especially true for the social group of reformers. Yeah, and why English history? Well, um, the decision to specifically look at Anglo-Saxon reform communities comes from pure interest, to be honest. The time before the Norman conquest is an extremely interesting and, and colorful period of English history. Like the success of, of TV series such as The Last Kingdom or Vikings shows, once you start reading on it, you're completely dragged into it. At least that was the case when I started working on it. So that is why it is a book on, on English history. Could you say a bit more about these reformers? Well, values always have a social dimension. Um, we tend to get along better with each other when we share the same moral convictions, when we are on the same page when it comes to much debated issues like, for instance, the scope of personal freedom. That is why a shared set of values can be the nucleus of um, group formation processes. Take, for instance, modern day activists groups like Fridays for Future. Um, what brought these people from very different backgrounds together is the shared conviction that something needs to be done about climate change to preserve our planet for the generations to come. The belief is what constitutes them as a group. Medieval people were no different, although, of course, other things were on their agenda, not climate change. Um, the groups I looked at also experienced a time of crisis, that is a period marked by raids and invasions from Scandinavia, and they felt a need to respond to that by appeasing God. For these raids were, were seen as a punishment for the people's sinfulness. Society had lost its way and needed to be restored to a moral state that was pleasing to God. That was their belief. Although there are always value conflicts and debates on what is morally okay and what is not, under certain circumstances, these discussions can intensify. And this intensification, often triggered by social, political, or economic crisis, can be described in an analytical sense as reforms. And the last point is very important as scholarship has recently questioned whether the modern term reform is really applicable to these medieval calls for renewal. For medieval reformers did not look to the future, but paradoxically to the past when they tried to, to change things for the better. As God has created the world, creation was perfect and order only needed to be restored so that there's perfection again. Yet this former ideal state had never existed. It was just an argument to, to justify social change, basically. 
So despite lauding the good old days, these reformers, just like the modern day counterparts, to be honest, effectively looked for up-to-date solutions to serve their contemporary needs. Who are these people and what sources did you look at? I mainly looked at a, a specific text genre, um, that is saints' lives. Um, these were written by clerics and monks who were the driving force behind these discourses and constituted the group's cause, so to speak. But reform, and that is important, was not just an ecclesiastical matter. It concerns society as a whole. For everyone had to improve his or her ways to regain God's favor. This wider ambition of reform movements is also reflected in their vision of community. Everyone who held responsibility for others in some way, be it by a secular power or pastoral office, could become part of the reform group, be it man or woman, king or bishop, elderman or noblewoman, priest or nun, as long as he or she was guided by the respective moral principles. On the other hand, priests or monks who did not live up to these expectations were explicitly excluded from the group as long as they did not change their ways. So what makes these communities interesting is that they bridge social boundaries imposed on society by other concepts of social order and were quite diverse, in fact. Which role did women play in these reform communities? The interesting thing about women is that they cannot be office holders, at least not within the church. A woman cannot become bishop. But if you do look at these saints' lives, women figure prominently. And this is in contradiction somehow to, to older research, who has always highlighted the misogynistic worldview of um, monastic reformers, and that is not true. Women can have or can influence um, the moral discourse by being examples for a perfect way of life themselves, although they do not have or do not hold a specific office. For instance, there is one episode in the life of St. Dunstan, or the first life of St. Dunstan, where one woman figures prominently when she comes to the end of her life. Dunstan tends to her in her last hours. And what is interesting, Dunstan is the priest in this scenario. So you would actually expect him to say her what she has to do to, you know, have or die in a way that is pleasing to God. But it's the other way around. She tells Dunstan what he has to do so that um, her death is in a way a perfect example. And um, that is quite interesting. So women can hold authority in uh, these reform groups, although there is no formal office for them. So that's quite interesting. What surprised you? What really struck me most is how diverse the different value discourses turned out to be. Um, take chastity, for instance. You would think that for a monk, there is no discussion what counts as chaste behavior and what does not. That is basically you have to restrain from any sexual intercourse. And this certainly holds true for religious experts 
such as monks and the secular clergy. But for chastity to become a societal value that can be applied to everyone, you have to make exceptions. A king cannot be chaste in an absolute sense of the word, for he would endanger dynastic succession um, by not producing an heir. A world of monks, and that is also a very important aspect, was decidedly not what the authors had in mind, because such a world would in no way be viable. I mean, how should a world like that turn out to be? And the result of this awareness is a very nuanced and gradual understanding of chastity, which leaves room for lay people to have sex. There are, of course, older models for this, but still the willingness to accept sexuality as a given fact and to thus integrate it into the moral framework nevertheless surprised me a lot. Who should read your book? Well, uh, yeah, who should read my book? Everyone interested in early English history and medieval reform movements, of course, um, but also those who want to know more about group formation processes and the history of values in general. Although it is quite a long book, I tried to, to make it more accessible by choosing a systematic outline for my argument. Both case studies are subdivided into two major parts. The first part is basically a catalog of the different values discussed in the sources. And in the second part, I address the social dimension of these discourses. So people do not have to read the study from cover to cover, but can choose those who are interested more in the moral framework and the use of values as arguments can focus on the first part, while those who want to know more about the social repercussions of these discussions can read the second part. But if they want to read the whole 600 pages, I would be more than happy, <laughs> of course. Um, furthermore, in my conclusion, I highlight the wider implications of my topic to stimulate further research beyond my two case studies. By highlighting the role of women in reform communities, the study also contributes to the study on, on gender roles in the Middle Ages, for instance. So there is, hopefully, something for everyone. And last but not least, there are also English abstracts for every major part to give non-German readers an impression of the study's main arguments and, and findings. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.